Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. I love that song. It fits so great with what we're talking about in the book of Daniel, how God is still in control, how God still reigns. Daniel 7 is where we'll be this morning, so turn in your Bibles if you would. I don't know if you've been thinking like I have in these last few days, months. Seems like I, I, I keep thinking, how's all this going to end? When's all this going to end? And I don't know if you've ever thought this, this thought yourself. Ever thought about how the world is going to end? Bible talks about that. And so we're going to talk about that in Daniel 7 and the rest of, of Daniel. It's uh, how it all ends. And, and what we should do until it all ends. That's what we're going to look at today. And so as we think about what's going on, a lot of folks would say, Hollywood would say, maybe it ends with zombies or or maybe it ends with uh, aliens or nuclear war. Or we, the Bible's clear about it. It's going to end when God's ready for it to end. And God's going to be in charge of the end as he was in charge of the beginning. So we talk about the, the apocalypse or the, the end of all things, the signs of the apocalypse. Well, apocalypse actually means unveiling or revealing. And we're looking at apocalyptic literature, all right? So you just think about that for a minute. As we think about the Bible and what the Bible is all about, it's got all sorts of different kind of genre of literature, different types. There's poetry, there's history, there's, there's gospels, there's law, there's uh, epistles, and we don't read all of them the same, but we're looking at apocalyptic literature in the second half of the book of Daniel and it's, it's prophetic, but it's even more than that. It's talking about the end times. There's a whole study or a whole area of theology called eschatology, which is the study of the end, the study of end times. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, I, I don't know how exactly it's going to all end. I don't know when. I know Jesus said nobody knows the hour and the, and the time and the date and all that stuff. So you hear people talk about the time, the hour, and the date. They don't know what they're talking about because Jesus said only the Father knows. And at one point, he didn't even know that only the Father, Father knew that. And so when we talk about uh, this together, we're talking about things that uh, we have an idea about but are still in the future and going to work itself out now in the the book of Daniel was included in the, in the Scripture because the prophecies that he made, many of them already have come true or are going to come true, and that's what we're going to look at in chapter 7. Now, when we talk about Daniel 7, it connects back to Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar had that dream about the world and how the, the world empires are going to take place. And you see that big colossus, that statue, and the gold, and the silver, and the bronze, and the iron, and all that's going on. That is man's perspective of world history. Today we get God's perspective. And it doesn't have to do with so much the, the, the elements, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. It has to do with, with animals. And, it, and yet there's still these world evil, world empires that come on the stage and come, go off of the stage. And yet there's something happens in Daniel 7 that we want to focus on in our time together today. Now, I don't know how you feel about all that's going on in our world. I know that we are living in troubled times like Daniel was living in troubled times. Are we not? We think about 
the, the trouble that we face. We are not living in United States right now. We're living in red states and blue states, it seems to me. And, and there's all spectrum of folks. And we're not going to talk politics. Please know that I'm never going to talk politics from the pulpit. But, but there's all spectrums of things. There's, uh, there's conspiracy theories on, on one end of what's going on. That the, the apocalypse is happening because there's a, uh, the, a new world order that's being developed even now. And it's kind of secretive and going to take over the world kind of deal. That, that's actually people. That's not so much fringe as it used to be. A lot of people are are believing that there's conspiracies going on. On the other end, we see folks who are so afraid of this virus that they think this virus is going to going to kill us all off. And we see everything in between. There are troubled times that we live in in our day. We can't escape those things now. But you know what? In our world, even in our country, it hasn't reached. And it may it may reach this peak again. But it hasn't reached the peak of where it was in the 1800s. Remember what was happening in the 1860s? Remember what? Yeah, it's the Civil War. War. It, it wasn't red and blue. It was north and south. Remember all that was going on during that Civil War? I'm saying remember like you were actually there. You weren't there. Remember from history with me for, for just a moment. I don't even think Boyd Dean was alive during those days. You don't remember that personally, do you, Boyd? Uh, just a pup went way back then. So the, the union was being ripped apart at the seams because of the divisiveness and whether it was over slavery or states' rights and all of what we know the Civil War was fought over. It was, it was being ripped apart. And there was a, a lady named Julia Award who visited these, these camps, visited union camps and Confederate camps. And, and in these camps, every evening, they'd, they'd sing songs. I guess it was the day before... AirPods in their ears, and they were singing songs, and they made up many of, of these songs. And sh- from those songs, uh, she wrote a poem. She's an author and writer, and, and I don't know, maybe you've heard it. It was, it came from both camps, and it went something like this: "My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord." You know that one? You know that song? You know what? What my he- Help me with it. In my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He loo- oh, it's where His grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed His faithful lightning of His terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. So, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of the, the chaos of that war, she is pointing to the providence of God and even the judgment of God for all those folks. Now, trouble in our world, especially even now, even before all of this happened, our, our world was troubled, was it not? For the, even the Christians that have hope in the Lord, we know that in the last century, the 20th century, that there were some 45 million estimated Christians who were martyrs for the cause of Christ, more than all the other centuries combined. That's from a, a guy named David Barrett who, who wrote uh, a world encyclopedia of Christianity. We know that since 1990, some 160,000 or 4.8 million Christians have been martyred. And all over the world, they're imprisoned, tortured, 
exiled, blacklisted, deprived of their property, Christians all, all over. And yet we know in the midst of all that's gone on and is going on, that our God still in control and he's working a plan and at the high point the high point of the Babylonian exile in Daniel 7 when the suffering of God's people reached its peak God gave Daniel a vision he gave him a a panorama of world history like he had done Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and he He also gave him a vision of how it's all going to end and who wins in the end. We're going to look at the first 14 verses and focus on those verses. And I wonder if you would stand in honor of the reading of Daniel 7, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked and behold, Another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions. And behold a fourth beast. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different than all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, and I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up from by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth, speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. I looked then because of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. 
and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Oh, Father, teach us. Help us not just to know more of what the story says and the vision means. But help us to know more of you. Help us to know more of ourselves. And Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do and be who you've called us to be and to share it. To share it with people that we've already prayed for this morning who need to know who need the hope we have in you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot going on here, right? Who You want to know a little bit about this? So what we're going to do as we cover this apocalyptic literature is I need to give you a couple of of just kind of warning signs. Apocalyptic literature is obviously symbolic in lots of ways. So we're talking about two primary books in the Bible that are apocalyptic in nature. Huh? They're, they're revealing the future. They're revealing the end time. We're talking about Daniel in the Old Testament. We're talking about Revelation in the New Testament. And by the way, there are a lot of parallels to Daniel 7 in Revelation 13. Even the language is used. So we're going to talk about how, what these symbols mean. Now, we're going to have to figure out these animals, are we not? And there, there's an interpretation at the end of chapter 7. I want you to look at that on your own. As we, we won't have time to cover all of that uh, during this few brief moments. So brief to preach. I don't have enough time to preach all of it. I know you guys want more, and I know you want to run into that second service, but today we're going to be a little brief, and we're just going to talk about uh, what these symbols mean about this vision. Now, we see these beasts coming up out of the sea. The sea in the Bible is always a, a symbol of chaos. Not always, but often is a symbol of chaos or a symbol of, of disorder or even disobedience against God. And, and we see this in our language today. We could talk about the sea of humanity or the sea of sinful humanity. So out of the sea come these animals. And we're going to start with the first, just walking through these, these four beast empires. And they parallel to, again, to chapter 2. And the first one is this lion with eagle's wings. Now, we think about the symbolism of animals. It happens still today. We talk about the lion of Great Britain or the American eagle. Or we talk about the Russian bear. Those kind of things, still have, they still represent uh, nations and so today, the first one we want to look at is this eagle-winged lion, and it represents the ancient empire or kingdom of Babylon. And the archaeologists have uh, the picture of lions and wings at, at the gates of 
of Babylon. So they, they're pretty convinced that uh, this is, is Babylon. And so when we think about the Babylonian Empire, we see in verse 4, there's some things that it, it talks about here. Four great beasts. That first one is the lion with eagle's wings. And, and it looked, its wings were plucked off. Now, what's that all about? Remember? Who is the head? Who represents the head of the statue? It's, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Who is the, the king in uh, Babylon? And, and Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. And what, how was he humbled? Remember? He was a lion out in that pasture eating grass like an, like an ox. And so this is a picture of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes crazy. And in this particular verse, it says he was lifted up in the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man because he was restored. And the mind of a man was given to this lion. His sanity came back to him. So that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to talk a, a, about all of these in, a, in just a, a second, a little bit more. So let's look to the second one. This is the bear. And the bear is kind of weird because it's raised on one side, and that's the next empire. And you remember after Babylon, what was the next one? It was the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Persians were a little bit more powerful than the Medes, and so that seems to be representative there. This bear, this rib-eating bear, and it probably represents some countries that Persia had just taken over, uh, Lydia and now Babylon after them, and then in the... In the future, it's going to be Egypt as well. So there's three countries that this rib-eating bear has taken over. And we'll stay with me. Why is it a, this important? That's that's. <laughs> there's going to be a point here in just a little bit, okay? And verse 5, we see... Oh, that, that was verse 5. Verse 6 says, And this I looked, and behold, like a leopard, and four wings on, of a bird on its back, and it had four... Heads and so that's weird. Well, who came? Who comes after the Medes and the Persians? It's the Greeks, and they're they're represented with this leopard, and and a, and the wings. And so one of the keys to Alexander the Great's takeover, folks, he, at one point he had like thirty five thousand soldiers that whipped about three hundred thousand of the Persian soldiers. And the way they did it was with these these quick attacks. And so it, it represents Alexander the Great, the next great empire. And then comes this beast that we don't even know. We don't even have an earthly beast to describe this beast. It's just a terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly, verse 7 says, strong beast with great iron teeth. So who comes after the Greeks? It's the, you know, your history. It's the Romans. Exactly. It's the Romans, and, and the Romans just whip everything in their path. They devour and break into pieces and stamp it, and, and then there's ten horns on this, which is probably a, a future-pointing thing where, where there are ten different kingdoms. The four heads of the leopards were Alexander the Great's generals, and, they, and after Alexander the Great dies at age 32, and then uh, legend says that he, he's in tears at that point, because there are no more lands to conquer. And after that, the, the kingdom, his kingdom, the Greek kingdom, was divided among his four generals. And after that, the Romans come. And the Romans overtake Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And, and it's a, this horrible thing that happens, and it's, 
And, and really, what Daniel is telling us and what Daniel sees from the Lord and what chapter 2 and chapter 7 are both saying is the Roman Empire might have fallen, but the, the form of government, the republic form of government is still in place today and there's going to be a time. And at the end time, it hasn't happened yet, uh, when those dominions are somehow reconstituted and, and then the end is going to happen. All right, so are we perfectly clear about, about what that symbolism all means? It's, it's confusing, is it not? What I want you to see, though, is that in all of this and in this vision, God is the one who causes them to rise and to fall. So whatever it is today that concerns you and me, just know God's still in control of it. Look at verse 4. It's God who plucks off Nebuchadnezzar's wings, the wings of that lion. In verse 5, it says, someone or something says, it's told that bear to arise and devour much flesh, which is talking about how much the Persians are going to conquer. Their kingdom at that point was larger than any known to man. And who's telling them to arise and devour much flesh? It's the Most High God. It's the Lord. In verse 7, in that leopard, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 6, that leopard, it says, dominion was given to it. Who gave the leopard dominion? God did. God did. And so, Daniel writes this to a group of people who were exiled in Babylon. And he wants to remind them what God has shown him in this vision. And in spite of appearances, in spite of the fact that they're no longer in the promised land, they're in a foreign land, they're strangers in a a strange land, that God is in charge of all the evil empires. And God's working His plan. And as we continue to look at this, and we see this earthly vision, we look that there's a, a moment where Daniel gets a, a, a picture of a heavenly vision. And it's God Himself that's on the throne. Starting in verse 9. Now, by the way, this little horn, is, most folks believe that's the Antichrist. I'm not going to cover a lot of that. I don't understand a lot of that in myself. But I, I, do, I do understand that the Bible talks about at the end, there's going to be this great battle, the battle of Armageddon, and the Antichrist is going to fight Christ. And, and that's part of how the whole world is going to end. And so the rest of the chapter explains some more of that if you want some more details about that. But it... But I want you to see that in this particular section, the next part of the vision that Daniel gets is, is God is on his throne as the ancient of days. And it's a judgment scene. 
And he's on his throne, and there are fiery flames, which is in the indication that judgment is taking place of all these, these nations. And, and it, its wheels were burning fire in the, at the end of verse 9, which is an indication that that judgment is not just in one place. It's everywhere, that it's omnipotent, that it's omni, omnipresent, all-powerful and ever-present. It moves because the, the throne has wheels on it. And then we see this great court judgment at the end of chapter, or verse 10. And he sat on his throne, and the court sat in judgment. And the books, the books were open. Now that's, that's a key part, I think, of what Daniel is trying to describe here. We think about the books being opened in this judgment. And, and books are, are, in the Scripture, often symbolic. Symbolic of, of God's um, memory. God writes in His books. God's got these, this image of like He needed some way to remember. But that's what it is for us. He's, these books, it's a memory of our deeds and our words and our thoughts. And the Scripture talks about this in places like uh, this in Daniel 7. But Daniel 12 also says, then there will be a time of anguish, and it's talking about the end when the Antichrist is, is given some dominion over the people of God, and there's all this tribulation and turmoil, and the anguish is is greater than any since nations first came into existence in Daniel 12, 1, the, end, the second part of that, part B. But at that time, at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Does that language sound familiar at all? Remember, there's an occasion in Jesus' time with his disciples where he has sent out he has sent out seventy two to cast out demons and to do his work in in Luke ten, and they come back and they're they're rejoicing that the demons obeyed him in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says in Luke ten twenty, "Hey, don't rejoice that the spirits obey you, but rejoice that your names are written." In heaven. In the books. That you're part of the kingdom of God. And so when we, we look at this, we know uh, Revelation talks about this great book of life. In Revelation twenty twelve, it says this. That at the end, John's given a vision as well as Daniel in that apocalyptic book. And he says, I saw the dead, both great and small, in Revelation twenty twelve, standing before God's throne, this great white throne judgment, and the books were opened, including the book of life. We call it, and the Scripture calls it, the Lamb's. Of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done. 
Now, think about that for just a moment. If God is keeping record in books in heaven, like the scripture describes that, of our, our deeds and our, our thoughts and our words, whew, I'm in trouble. Are you? You think about that? And, and if we're going to be judged at that great white throne judgment, according to all that we have said and thought and done, none of us has a chance. Would you agree? If, if our entrance into heaven is based upon what we've done, how good do we have to be? Folks, you're some of the finest people I know, but you don't make it, and I don't either. So, how does our name get written in the book? Remember, we've got to get in on somebody else's ticket. Jesus's. I love the passage in in John 5, and... I want you to turn there, if you would, for just a moment. Jesus talking about how he and the Father are one in, at the, in John, about John 5, 24 or so. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when he talks about his own authority, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. And I'm going to equate that with your name being written in the book of life. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You know how I, I, I see that? And I, I think I don't think this is a... I think it's a wonderful interpretation. (laughs) For me, we can skip that great white throne judgment as the people of God. That our words and our deeds and and our thoughts do not come under the judgment. But we, because of our belief, our faith, our depending on Jesus in our place, can skip that judgment. That's what it says. Whoever believes in me has eternal life and does not come into, what's it, what's it say? Judgment. He took our place. He took our place. And so that's, that's key as these, these books are open. And we see that. And then it says in Revelation 20, 15, and anyone whose name is not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The picture of hell. So if your name is written in the book of life, you get to live forever. If your name is not in the book of life, you get to die forever. We don't want that to happen to anybody. But we've got to think about who needs to hear those words. And how can we get that message across? Because in this particular vision, the Ancient of Days, God the Father is sitting in judgment. And then he sa- it says in verse 13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. You see, Babylon is gone. Persia is gone. The ancient um, Greek empire is not, I mean, there's still Greece, but it's not the ancient Greek empire ruling the world. The Roman empire has fallen, but this one, like the son of man, we know who that is. His name, who, who would, let's take a little guess. I bet most of the folks in this place could guess his name. Anybody? Anybody? Jesus. Why would you say that? Why would you say that? One like the Son of Man is Jesus because we know the rest of the story, don't we? And we know that Jesus says that of himself. You realize his favorite name for himself was the Son of Man. He says things like the Son of Man has the the authority to forgive sin. He says the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He's talking uh, about himself. He says that the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, came not to, to be served but to serve others in Mark 10, 45 and to give His life as a ransom for many. There's a, a moment in, in Matthew 26, 24 when Jesus stands before those who are accusing Him. He's about to be crucified and they ask Him, Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And He responds with these words. Jesus replied, you've said it. Yeah, I'm the one. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand. Now, in Daniel's vision, there's all these thrones, plural. Uh, the Ancient of Days is on one. I'm convinced that the Son of Man, Jesus, is, is there. I don't know how that's going to look because he's not only... Um, the Father, but He's the Son and He's the Spirit. I don't know how the Trinity is going to appear in that last judgment. I, I, my brain just, it hurts when I start to think about how miraculous the Trinity is, how God can be one and yet three persons. And we, we, I have some explanations for you. I, I, I understand it a certain, to a certain degree, but it's, it's amazing to me still. And so when we, we look at what he's saying, though, he says the Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Does that sound familiar? That's what Daniel says. The vision is all about the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven. You know what Jesus is saying? Some 600 years later after Daniel Today, and after Daniel sees this vision, he's saying, I'm the one Daniel was talking about. That's why he uses this image of the Son of Man. He wants to identify with humanity in the flesh, God incarnate. But he also wants to identify with Daniel 7, the one who comes and whose dominion and kingdom lasts forever. See, the history of the world is all those other kingdoms are going to fall away, but the history of eternity, the history of eternity is that God reigns forever. 
And we, we get to reign with Him. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. And we're part of the kingdom. So what do we do in the meantime? We watch. We, we watch. That's what Mark 13 is talking about. The end of time. And the coming of the Son of Man. We're watchful. But the most important thing, I think, is that we're ready. See, I don't know how it's all going to end, when it's all going to end, how it's all going to play out, but I know I'm ready. And I want you to be ready too. And the, the most important thing about being ready is to make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And how do you get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? It's by believing. It's by putting your faith and believing. It's not just with your head, but it's with your heart and with your life. You're putting all your weight on Him. You're putting all your eggs in one basket, and that basket belongs to Jesus. And you know that He's done for you what needs to be done. Forgive you of your sin. Give you meaning and purpose the rest of your days. You put your faith in Him. You believe what He did on the cross but you also choose to follow Him. We don't just call ourselves Christian, but we follow Jesus. There's a difference there, folks. We do what He's called us to do. The final assessment of, of things, we're, while we wait, we're faithful. Faithful. What would that mean for you? What would that look like? More than just coming to church, isn't it? It's more than just reading your Bible and praying. Some religious activities. It's living like He's the one in control. Like He's the one that we're going to stand before in judgment. Like He's the one that we serve. That we please. That we're living our lives for an audience of one, the one true God, most high God. Till then, till we see that Him in that judgment, we just remain faithful now. I want to close with this, this story. I know you're kind of wondering, what in the world is this all about? huh? Well, I, I'm a Cubs fan. I've been a Cubs fan since I was a little kid. I, I'm a Ranger fan too, but... But I, when I was a little kid, there was a, a station, WGN. Y'all remember WGN? Remember? The Cubs were on WGN. The Braves were on WTBS. And it, and it was before the days that you could watch almost any game you wanted to watch anytime you wanted to watch. There was a, I can remember. I can still remember the days when we only had three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. Y'all, some of you remember that? We had, a, we had an antenna and all that kind of stuff that you had, this group knows what I'm talking about here, right? My brother, my older brother learned the Star Spangled Banner by watching the game of the week. We stood up every time. Because they played it on TV, we'd, we'd put our hands over our hearts and we'd sing the, the Star Spangled Banner when I was a kid. So I was in that era. There was, it kind of branched out when we got to cable TV and WGN was on. And, and the Cubs were my team. Harry Carey would sing it, take me out to the ball, ball game and, in the seventh inning stretch, and I knew Ryan Sandberg and uh, Andre Dawson and all those guys. So that was my team. There was this guy who played first base for them. 
at that there in that area named Mark Grace. Mark Grace. I lo- I love Mark Grace. In fact, in high school I was number seventeen and I played first base like he did because I lo- I like Mark Grace so much. I love his jersey because I love just seeing that Grace on the back of the jersey. Now, if you're a Cubs fan, you know that for a long, long time, they're just lovable losers. I mean, the last time before 2016 that they even played in a World Series was 1945. And that's why people were so mad at a guy named Steve Bartman like in 2003 or so when he got involved in that foul ball. He got death threats because they thought he prevented the Cubs from going uh, to the World series over the Florida Marlins. Some of you remember all of that. And if you're a baseball fan, you, you remember that. That was those were crazy days when somebody when they were it had nothing to do with the Cubs were gave up eight runs after that. I mean he didn't have anything to do with that. But they they were out to get that guy because they were I guess they weren't such lovable losers. They didn't want to lose. I'm telling you all this to tell you this. We just got to be faithful to the kingdom because in 2016, those lovable losers became world champions. Seventh game of the World Series, they beat the Cleveland Indians 8-7. to seven. It was a great day for Cubs fans. And I want to share that with you this because of this too. Because what we do in the meantime is we drink up the grace of God. We remain faithful. We trust that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves to save our souls, to sustain us in times of trouble, and to give us hope. And we don't just drink it in. We dispense it out. So here's the question I leave with you. In the meantime, who's on your heart for heaven? Who can you share some of the things we've talked about, about how it's all going to end, and about the judgment, and about getting their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Because it's not just about you and me understanding it and taking care of ourselves, but passing it on to the people that God has given us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for the time that you've given us together in your word. And, Father, we are still amazed by your grace. Father, as we think about the division and the trouble our world is in, remind us constantly, assure us constantly that even though things seem to be or appear to be out of control, they're never out of your hand. And we, as your people, we as your people are going to receive your kingdom because of the Son of Man, because of Jesus. Thank you. Help us not just receive it, but to pass it on to Thank you for those opportunities. In your holy name we pray. 
Amen. You stand as we sing Amazing Grace. Would you be reminded of the amazing grace of God? And would you think about right here, right now, about those folks that are on your heart for heaven that need to hear about God's amazing grace? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to get the word to them? How are you going to share with them? How are you going to love them?